I don't know about you, but at 4 a.m., I'm usually fast asleep. For one engineer of a colonial pipeline company, however, Verde was just beginning. In fact, it was probably going to be a very long day, and I have to imagine it started off like any other morning. You wake up, you get ready for work, maybe get a coffee and a breakfast sandwich on the way in. But just before 5 a.m., when the colonial employee entered the control room, what they saw was no typical start to the day. On the screen of one of the computers was a ransom note that read as follows. It said that hackers had exfiltrated material from the company's shared internal drive, and it demanded approximately $5 million in exchange for the files. Specifically, it read, your network has been locked. You need pay $5 million now or $10 million after doubled. After payment, we will provide you universal decryptor for all network. Don't worry, we are good decryption specialists. And then it lists the time left at the bottom before which the payment would double. At this point, the employee knows that something is wrong and starts escalating it to their operations supervisor. By 6.10 a.m., not even two hours later, for a first time in its 57 years of use, the entire Colonial Pipeline was shut down. So, how did this note get on the computer? Why did they shut the pipeline down? And who's responsible for what is possibly the biggest infrastructure attack of this year so far? Well, there's a lot to unpack here, so thanks for joining me. I'm John Cordes, and I'm about to explain what the shell is going on. A massive cybersecurity breach. Monitors and other medical devices like pacemakers are some of the newest vulnerabilities to cyber attack in the healthcare industry. All of the major players in this solar winds hack, which the US government has attributed to Russia. Local medical security experts are starting to raise their voices about a new target, medical device. And there's still so much we don't know. Is it just me? Or did there not used to be a massive ransomware attack every two months? Welcome to What the Shell. My name is John Cordes, and today I'm inviting you to join me as I take a look at the Colonial Pipeline hack. I'd like to know how it happened, who did it, and why. So join me and let's ask a question together. What Michelle's going on? Well, as fuel stations run out of gas amid panic buying after cyber attackers hit the Colonial Pipeline, the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission is reminding drivers just how dangerous improperly stored gas could be. In a tweet, the commission warned the public, and I can't believe they had to warn the public about this, but they did. They warned people about filling plastic bags with gasoline. The warning comes as images show desperate drivers lining up at pumps, hoarding containers full of gas. The commission also is urging drivers only to fill approved containers that protect gasoline from an open flame, which could cause an explosion. Earlier this summer, a major attack was successfully carried out against the Colonial Pipeline. You might have seen the news clips of gas shortages with people filling up pickup beds, trash bags, and even canisters of gasoline at the pump. All of this trickled back to its roots in this very attack, and the fear that the extended shutdown could cause issues in the entire eastern U.S. To explain how we got to lines of a gas station and your cousin probably telling you to go fill up before it's too late, I'd like to take a step back and explain to you a bit about what the Colonial Pipeline actually is. 
The Colonial Pipeline is the largest pipeline system for refined oil products in the United States. The two tubes that make it up span about 5,500 miles, starting in Houston, continuing northeast to New York, and crossing over 10 states to get there. It's owned by the Colonial Pipeline Company and has been operating since 1964. As I mentioned before, on the morning of May 7th, the pipeline shut down entirely in response to this attack. It should be noted that this is not something that just happens. While sections of a pipeline might be stopped for maintenance from time to time, it was the first time in the 57-year run that the entirety of a pipeline had been stopped. Why did they do this? Well, let's go back and take a look at the note that was on the screen. The note was the first and biggest indicator of what was going on here, which is that the IT network of the Colonial Pipeline Company had been compromised by what's called ransomware. You may have heard this term quite a bit over the last few years because of the sheer amount of attacks that use this technique and the high amount of money that's typically involved in it. But what is it? To put simply, ransomware is like if someone broke into your house, stole all your valuables, photos, journals, anything they could get their hand on, and then locked it in a safe in your front yard. The thief, who has the combination to the safe, says to you, well, if you pay me, I'll give you the combination and you can have your stuff back. At this point, you've got two options. You can either pay the thief off and hope he never comes back, or rebuild your house so that the thief can't get in anymore and accept the loss. It's not a perfect analogy, but for this, it's close enough. Ransomware takes the concept and does it to entire computers and even entire networks. Ransomware encrypts every file it can get its hands on, and in many cases, it will then move to any other machine it can find. So, in order to prevent the spread of this at Colonial, what did they do? They shut down everything they could. After all, a computer can't be infected if it's off, and if it's already infected, it can't try to infect anymore. And if this infection spread to a machine beyond the internal IT network and over to the network where controls of the actual pipeline were housed, who knows what the attackers could have done. So when presented with this, companies typically have two options. The first is they can pay out a ransom, and that might seem all good and well, especially when a lot of companies have a level of cyber insurance that might help them recuperate their losses, but it hinges on two hopes that they'll get the decryptor tool, and that the attackers won't just do this again. After all, if you pay for ransom, what's to stop them from coming back however they got in? Auric is a global law firm focused on serving technology and innovation, energy and infrastructure, and finance sectors. Here are two of its partners, Jake Heath and Clem Robters, discussing the topic. If you have a choice, if you've got customer data that is highly valuable, if you have customer data um, that may not be highly valuable but is very sensitive, and you have the ability and the option to pay someone to essentially get that data back or access that data back, and you've chosen not to, and that becomes public, what are the ramifications of that? Another thing to consider is how good of a backup of that data do you have? Or specifically, how long can you be without that data? For some people, they can decide and think about whether they should pay the ransom or not for two or three days, depending on how good their backups are, how robust their systems are, whether they have redundancies built in place, whether they have access to supplemental information, etc. For others, being down 
for um, two to three hours might be uh, fatal to their business. The other option, as they mentioned, is dependent on the company being able to find out exactly when they were infected, and that's using backups. Much like how your phone can send a backup to the cloud, companies will often set backups for machines that they can restore to in case anything happens, like an employee's computer bites the dust, or in this case, if they get hacked. If you can determine when a hacker got into the network, then you can effectively reset everything back to before it happened, and hopefully avoid them getting back in. That sounds like it's something that's a bit of an easy fix, but when there's a time limit on how long you have before you lose files forever, and you don't know how long they've been in the network, it can put a lot of stress into play, and maybe make it seem like paying up is actually the right play. Not to mention, it's dependent on the backups being intact and available to be used. So what would you do? What should you do? Well, the Colonial Pipeline ended up paying the demanded ransom, but to who? Who was the cause of all this? Over the next few days, this got the attention of the entire country, including the office of the president. Organizations like the FBI and NSA were all working together to find out who could be responsible for this hack. While initial allegations were levied toward Russia based on the analysis of the ransomware, there was still not a clear group responsible for it until May 9th when a former official said that investigators were looking into a Russian hacking group that called themselves Darkseid, which the FBI would then confirm a day later on May 10th. But who are the Darkseid ransomware gang? Well, they were first really noticed around August of 2020, and they operate on a model called Ransomware as a Service wherein they develop and deploy ransomware for a certain price to anyone that's willing to pay. And the Colonial Pipeline wasn't their first attack either. Since their genesis, they've been active, targeting groups that they claim can afford to pay these ransoms without an issue. What's crazier is that the group is actually quite vocal and active on the internet, responding to this hack on their website, saying, We are apolitical. We do not participate in geopolitics and do not need to tie us with defined government and look for other our motives. Those are their words. Our goal is to make money and not creating problems for society. From today, we introduce moderation and check each company that our partners want to encrypt to avoid social consequences in the future, signed the Darkseid Gang. It may seem weird, to imagine a hacking group that is going to introduce moderation or add a sense of moral compass to their agenda, but that's kind of been this group's MO for a while. They've even gone so far as to brag on the dark web about donating roughly $20,000 to charity from what they've stolen so far, citing receipts of 0.88 Bitcoin to Children International and the Water Project in October of 2020. This might sound a bit like a Robin Hood approach, but when you consider that this isn't even the first time they've hacked oil and gas infrastructure, it starts to sound a lot more like a kid that's just sorry he got caught. It's also a bit hard to believe when the group is publicly posting job opportunities. In late March of this year, they posted this job wanted ad for their service. One was listed for a network penetration testing service, saying, we're looking for one person or a team. We'll adapt you to the work environment and provide work. 
high profit cuts, ability to target networks that you can't normally handle on your own, new experience, and stable income. Another was listed for providing networks and offered these incentives for giving a company to hack, saying, you'll work with us and with our affiliated. Before providing networks, we'll give you the affiliate payout statistics. When you use our product and the ransom is paid, we guarantee fair distribution of funds. A panel for monitoring results for your target. We only accept networks where you intend to run our payload. So they're actively scouting for people who either want to hack or are willing to sell out their employer for a payday. They pushed a bit too far with this, perhaps unintentionally. And now they're so on the radar that they're trying to keep what image they think they had. Yeah, their goal isn't to start a conflict, but at the end of the day, these are just a bunch of criminals that want to get paid. And since they're in Russia, they can avoid any kind of extradition to face repercussions because Russia has the mentality of, as long as you don't attack us, do what you want. It's because of this policy that President Biden suggests, while not the primary actor, the Russian government still bears some responsibility in this attack. Here he is talking about it. Do you think Russia is involved at all implicitly with that attack? I'm going to, have a I'm going to be meeting with President Putin, and uh, so far there is no evidence based on from our intelligence people that Russia is involved. Mr. President, if you can't protect critical infrastructure from a criminal actor, how can you possibly protect it from a state actor? You can do both. This reporter brings up a good question, and it's one that's brought up time and time again, with the end result being the major overhaul of how the U.S. is funding the security of its critical infrastructure. You see, right now, infrastructure is arguably at the weakest it could be. Hacking groups are more experienced and well-paid now than they've ever been, and there are easily accessible tools that will show what some organizations leave open to the internet that anyone, including me or you, could see. It could be a machine that you can log into with RDP, or even the actual controls of something like a water pump. Not to mention, with every major breach, there are hackers selling whatever credentials they can harvest on the dark web to the highest bidder. If we don't start funding the security of these institutions and holding organizations who maintain them responsible, what are we going to do when a nation state does come knocking at our doors? Because there are so many other options that aren't out of reach. Electrical suppliers, water companies, hospitals, public transit even. If one of those were compromised by someone looking to do damage instead of getting paid, the results could be even more disastrous than a fuel shortage. It's why Biden has said that it's not unreasonable for a cyber attack to one day lead to boots on the ground fighting. So what brought down Colonial? Was it a public facing system? A phishing scam? Did someone sneak in and plant a virus on the network? Recently, a hearing was held on the issue, and I encourage you to listen to the whole thing, but here's Charles Carmackle, the Senior Vice President of Cybersecurity at the firm Mandiant, discussing the earliest evidence of attack. Carmackle was a part of a team of cybersecurity consultants brought in to help with the issue. As we conduct investigations, we try to figure out what is the earliest evidence of what the attacker has done within the environment. And based on our investigation, the earliest evidence was a login to the Colonial Pipeline VPN. And we do know that a um, employee's credentials were used, so a username and a password was used to do that. 
we did not figure out exactly um, how the attacker was able to get access to the username, um, but it is uh, a possibility that the attacker was able to leverage credentials that the employee may have used on another website that was compromised prior to this date. And so it is certainly possible that that is how the attacker got in. Um, whether or not the vulnerability or the misconfiguration, and let me you know, you know, clarify it as a misconfiguration, whether it would have been picked up uh, by a vulnerability assessment is, is hard to tell. But um, I, I just want to clarify that what actually occurred was there was a legacy VPN profile that was in place that wasn't believed to be active, and that enabled an attacker to leverage both a user and a password to log in. So how would one correct that problem? Yeah, so the problem has been corrected at this point in time. The legacy VPN profile has been completely removed. And um, and so a, a, a user, whether an attacker or an employee, would not be able to attempt to log into the system without requiring multi-factor authentication. So in addition to a password, you would need a one-time code in order to be able to log into the Colonial Pipeline VPN at this point in time. Yes, the victim was an employee that had reused their password from somewhere else in combination with an old account that should have been deactivated since it was a part of an older system. All they had to do was try their credential against VPN platform that Colonial uses and suddenly they had access to the internal network. In the end, because of this intrusion, Colonial chose to pay the ransom to the tune of around $5 million. They did this almost immediately, but it was kept from the public while they worked on their investigation and started the process of restoring service when they were ready. And on May 12th, five days later, the pipeline was restored to functionality. However, it should be noted here that because of the downtime, it would eventually take the supply chain several more days to return to normal. That's how we got to the start of a show, with people panic buying gasoline and driving pickup trucks full of fuel. But who's truly responsible here? Yes, the Darkseid gang should be held accountable for the attack, but they're not the only ones that allowed this to happen. Do we also hold Russia accountable? Should the employee who reused an internal credential externally face any consequences? Should Colonial face consequences for not having the right security controls in place? I understand, uh, but you know, we're not talking about ordinary people. We're talking about uh, a pipeline that control, controls 55% of the energy resources in the Northeast. So you would expect uh, a more robust uh, system than just an ordinary system. As he said in that hearing, enabling multi-factor authentication was a good measure, but they did it after the attack and there was probably more that could have been done to prevent this from happening, like filtering out suspicious locations for remote logins, or a more thorough audit of account access. Clearly, there's a lot that needs to happen to resolve the issues in the future so that this doesn't happen again. It's muddy water, but hopefully with a new Infrastructure Act, we can start to clear it up so that attacks like this become far less common. Because big businesses aren't the only ones vulnerable to this. You. Your family, even I'm prone to this kind of attack. The best we can do is to be on guard for it and limit the ways in which we're vulnerable. If you can, inventory your passwords in a password management app like LastPass and make sure that you don't use the same one twice. A lot of these apps have great features and plugins that 
actually mean you can just use a long random password without having to remember it. You can also lower your risk by enabling multi-factor authentication wherever possible. That's where, after you enter your password, you also need a code provided through either a text or an application to finish logging in. That second layer of authentication can really slow down or even stop an attacker entirely that's trying to hit you. In the end, the responsibility doesn't seem to fall on any one individual or organization. The matter of fact is that security is everybody's responsibility, and we all should try our best to make sure we're at least being a little bit mindful about it. Thanks so much for joining me in the first episode of What the Shell. I really hope you enjoyed it. I've put up this and episode two today, so if you liked it, please feel free to give that a listen as well. If you're interested in seeing what the ransom note actually looked like for this attack, you can find a picture of what the Darkside gang uses as a ransom note on our Instagram or Twitter pages at shell underscore pod for both accounts. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a review. I won't know how to make this show better without feedback from you, the audience, and that's the goal here is to deliver content that you'd enjoy. I'm John Cordes, and thanks for joining me while I explain what the shell is going on 